sound effects so we can bagpipe <laughs> oh maybe i can find some a bag- moment of silence there and then you can just put a bagpipe in yeah yeah I, I need to find a bagpipe sound clip i can use for this episode basically just go down and stand on the street corner in downtown halifax they're forever <laughs> piping the tourists around like it's a common thing like- yeah i mean we could fiddle it in too i'm sure probably fiddle is a lot easier Fiddle probably is easier. I, in fact, know people who play fiddle. <laughs> yeah, well, this is it, right? So, um, but I, I don't know. If we we are from Nova Scotia, therefore it would be hard for us to figure out what a Nova Scotia accent was for, for yelling out book rage. Well, in fact, mm-hmm. I'm not from Nova Scotia. Oh, right, you're a New Brunswicker. I forgot that. So you, you could find a, a Nova Scotia accent to book rage it in. I, well, I'm pretty sure that I just have a rural maritime accent so this is it this is, the accent. this is all i got for accents okay yeah i have an accent uh and it's the only one i can do <laughs> yeah west and i waitressed i would pour on the accent yes to, and to... just to get more tips and it would be like and it was just ridiculousness it was just because the people from ontario didn't know any better yeah, well, there is that. Local color. <laughs> give me some local color, you'll give me some of your hard-earned uh, loonies. <laughs> so, um, mm-hmm. I'm doing really well. I've finished 33 books so far this year. You know what? I have completely not kept track of things. I have to go That's through... The resolution. You were going to... I know. I have to go through a big catch-up. I was starting to do it in the last few minutes before recording time, and I either suck big time, which is... That was like writing the last sentence on the homework. Yeah, totally, totally. I I either suck big time or I've forgotten a bunch of books because I'm only at 20. Well, I mean, again, though, you don't know what you read in a regular year because you never tracked it before. You I, supposedly tracked it last year, but you sucked at it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm still, I'm still biting the big one on that. Um, and I've been whipping through the audiobooks, though, too. And, I, I, man, I just I need to stop and get organized. So, anyway, I, I will go back. It's like a diet. I just, I'll go back to my resolution and get at, caught up. But, More uh, like a habit, right? You just need to get into the habit of when you finish reading your book, you write it down. Yes, and I just have been whipping through things and not. And plus, I'm reading this monster big book. Oh, yeah. And I'm also listening to audiobooks at the same time. So it feels like I've been reading the same book forever because it's like 603 pages or something crazy. What is it? Um, it is good, actually. I didn't think I was going to manage it. Um... It is uh, New York 2140, and it is by a sci-fi writer, Kim, oh my god, what's his name? (laughs) Kim Stanley Robinson. Kim Stanley Robinson, I have to come back towards the mic, and he's 
he's a really serious sci-fi writer and he got like an award from the Sierra Club for his environmentalism or and the whole premise of the book is it's New York in 2140 and New York is now like Venice okay because yeah. the ocean has risen and so there are canals and part of it's you know, like I don't know I'm trying to visualize it but basically it's a lot of old skyscrapers with water all around them surrounded by water surrounded by water and they've been adapted so that they don't leak and people live in them and everybody's got a boat and there are sky bridges and you know parts of it are like parts of New York are higher than other parts so some of it's still uh, you know above the, in the higher parts yeah well some of it's still above the ocean um and it's weird because I, it made me go look up Venice because I was like, what the hell is Venice? Like, I know they have canals, but is, like, everything sitting in shallow water? Like, apparently it's a whole bunch of little islands together, and I guess the buildings are actually on land, and they just have these waterways between them. But, I mean, even that I'm not sure about, you know? Um, and so it's fascinating because it is New York in the future, and New York still holds its cultural sway as this, you know amazing draw for people in this huge intricate city and he's got all kinds of quotes about New York at the beginning of each chapter and the weird thing is I thought it's going to be about the environment and sci-fi but actually it's a lot about economics and there's a whole big long economic plot and it's where the economy and the stock market and how it all works went in the future. And guess what? <laughs> it's still messed up and still works. Purple. Yeah, it still works a lot like it works today. Not very well. Um, but it was good. The characters, I eventually got into it. And it's like multi-character story and uh, kind of, wow. Anyway, he's a smarty pants because it seems like there's a lot going on in this book in terms of messaging and thought and and so many different characters and perspectives but it's it's coming together for me like I said when I started at the beginning I thought I am just never going to have the attention span to get through that baby so did you read anything Nova Scotian because you have this gigantic book well I you know what I did actually read something Nova Scotian I read the most heartless town in Canada Oh, did you? See, that is on my pile. Yes. I meaning to read it. Yeah. I've uh, heard great things, and then Paul Bennett talked about it when we were podcasting from NSLA. Yes, by Elaine McCluskey. McCluskey? Yeah. Gloria McCluskey's daughter, who's a longtime Dartmouth um, counselor for the, the HRN, Halifax Regional Municipality, for those who are not from Halifax. Um, the book sounds great. The cover is terrible. Now, see, I'm not so harsh on the cover, but I don't think the cover... You know, when you read the book, the cover does no service to the story. Mm. Like, it's not even... I was trying to figure out how the cover even related to the story. Because mm. it's not immediately clear. Yeah, why wouldn't they just show, like, a blurry picture of a factory or something? That would have been... Well, or just even stage a photograph. Like, it should be, um, there's a very popular series. Um, oh, they made it into a movie. Ransom Riggs wrote it. Um, 
Miss Penguin's home for peculiar children. Anyway, I mentioned Peregrine's. Peregrine, there you go. Peregrine's home for peculiar children. I only mention that because it uses photography on the cover and inside the book. And this would have been better served by a photographic image on the cover. Because that's what the story is about. I think so. I think it would have been way better served. Even some random photograph. Oh, yeah. it could, Or it could have been a montage of photography. But it needed to be a picture of something compellingly odd or, you know, shocking. And grainy because it's a lot about a newspaper story. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Go ahead and describe it. Because I actually haven't read it. I've just heard about it. And I have not read it yet. Well, it's it's like, um, oh, God. If you haven't lived in a small town, you'd probably really enjoy it. Because it's done in such a way as to give a very good experience of small town life. And by that, I mean there's all these different you know characters and their relationships and the closeness of it and almost the suffocation of living in a small town is conveyed very well um there are two narrators and they go back and forth um a girl and a boy well a man and a woman it's kind of a a recollection too a young man and a young woman? Yeah, sort of, because it's a, rec- a recollection. So it's after the events, but you don't really, until you're near the end, you don't get, like, the full picture of how far after the events. So they're probably in their late 20s when they're actually recollecting what happened to them. And this picture is at the center of the storyline. Um, And so they live in the middle of nowhere, which is Myrtle, Nova Scotia, which is a fictional town in Nova Scotia. But you can picture the place. Yeah, yeah. If you've been to small town Nova Scotia or small town anywhere, ultimately you can. Um, And there's, oh, the newspapers taken, the newspaper photos taken, and it's of one of the main narrators and it's just a very unattractive picture of her. And it just kind of involves her in this scandal in this small town because um, it becomes famous for the murder of eight bald eagles. Which, of course, is terribly shocking because, and probably has a lot of play in the US because of the bald eagle. Um, and it's just, she becomes like one of those famous images, photographic images from history that you know the image, but you don't know the people in it. And this picture takes on that kind of iconic level. And then you make your own assumptions about people. Yeah, and you don't even really get into that because, I mean, really the whole book is about how, what happened and what led up to this picture and how people were affected by events and... It's not even a terribly plot... Like, I can't say that it's a plot-driven story. It's really a character-driven story. I'm a fan of a character-driven story. Well, you would definitely enjoy it. Um, and It's sitting right now on my <laughs> coffee table at home. I've borrowed the library's copy. Oh. Hoping to read it for today, but it's probably better that I didn't. Yeah, yeah, well, definitely, because that's all I get that's new to offer. I do have other Nova Scotian books, but this is the one I read specifically for this episode. Because, 
After you hated the cover so badly, um, I wanted to find out what the hell. Yeah, this story I really was have about. a hate on for that cover, and I just I, every time I look at it, and maybe that's why I haven't read it yet. Yeah, probably. Um, and it's also too like some of the character names are quite um, ridiculous. Uh, like the main girl that I've been talking about is uh, Rita Van Loon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which is also speaks to kind of a Nova Scotia cliche of some of the local names. Um, and it was funny because I'm not, uh, well, I shouldn't say that. I did sail when I was a kid and I competed, but it's a lot about amateur sport, um, a lot about the media and how Central Canada views Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and, you know, the divide between the rural and the urban because I think um, everyone focuses on rural-urban divide, but, you know, it works both ways, except no one ever really explores how rural people make fun of or view urban people. <laughs> like, you know, we're always focusing on the urban perception of the rural. And... This book, I guess, is in, is good because it's kind of a defense or an attack against that, you know, that we're all kind of backward or ridiculous in the country. Yes, uh, we are. <laughs> yeah, whereas, you know, I know at our house we certainly make fun of those fellows in Toronto. Um, the people who called it the army because they had a snowstorm. <laughs> yeah, or, I mean, I think it's even worse. Like, some of the programming on CBC were just like, that must come out of Toronto because no normal person would care or want to listen to it. So, <laughs> we're maybe a little meaner than that one. But, yeah, you know, there's there's some things that, uh, uh, that your environment shapes you to a large um a large extent so and I know that people who've grown up in really small towns are often totally traumatized by it and only just like overjoyed with relief to get to some larger center where everybody does not know everything about them and their family yeah and that, but there's something to be said for um raising children in a small town or I mean, I now live in a small town, and there was a time when I would have thought, no, that I would never move back. But it's kind of nice to walk down the street and say hi to people and know them. And Well, this is interesting because this story is not really that positive about it in a sense. Um, you know, like, and so much of our literature in this part of the world, which I've gone on and on about, and I'll go on and on about again, is the unhappy people are the ones who are the stories about. Um, and so... The, well, because happy, shiny people make for boring stories. Yeah, totally. So this was not about the prom queen in the small town who had a delightful upbringing, because everyone thought she was the prettiest girl and loved her. Um... <laughs> Rita Van Loon is decidedly um, more of an oddball, and uh, her her co-narrator, which honest to goodness his name escapes me right now, is um, he's an even sadder story in a way because he was uh, he moved to this small town after his dad died in Newfoundland, and um, he and his mom were sort of struggling throughout this period. So it's not a happy period for the two characters that are recollecting it. And honestly, it's a strangely powerful book because... His name is Hubert 
Hansen. Oh, there you go. Hubert Hansen. Rita Van Loon and Hu- Hubert Hansen. Like, how are you going to have a good life with names like that, eh? Like, they're all ducks. Um, but what is interesting about this book is that I can't say that I enjoyed it. And I can't say I really like character-driven stories. And I can't even say that I was satisfied with the ending. But what I can say that speaks to the power of the book is I kept reading it. And it wasn't even because I needed to read a book by a Nova Scotian. It was like strangely compelling. That was a ringing endorsement. I know, but it is strangely compelling storytelling. Like you're drawn into this weird little thing and you keep going because you kind of want to see where it's going and how it works out. Um, But it's a slice of life book in the sense that it doesn't work out to some big point. Uh, I think the most happy part of it, you can say, is that they had this experience, this experience shaped them, but they both have ultimately, the ending is kind of positive because they've grown beyond it, and now they're reflecting back on it. So, I don't know. But he lived, it's fine. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it is interesting, though, and for anyone who um, hasn't grown up in a small town, and for those who haven't, you would find something interesting there. Because it is, like I said, it's, it's an odd little thing. Um, and it is hitting a big point in the sense of this rural-urban divide and kind of defending the rural experience to the outside big city media perception of it. Well, I'm still planning to read it. I'm going to read it. It's going. Oh to yeah, happen. you absolutely should. I think it's Can't guarantee uh, at what point that will happen. But I think it's um uh, like a lot of things that aren't tons of fun. It's important, um, because it does have it does have this larger point to make. Do you want to hear about a really bleak? important book that has a point to make. Yeah, you know what? Actually, for Nova Scotia, um, I did think about maybe including a kid's book, but I didn't. Um, And the rest of my books are slightly bleak as well. So yes, let's bring on the bleak. (laughs) I uh, read Indian School Road by Chris Benjamin. Oh, wow. So it's a nonfiction book. Well, the subtitle is Legacies of the Shubanakity Residential School. So it's a nonfiction book, and it's about the the residential school um, in Chubinacti, obviously, where for about 40 years they sent Indigenous children there to tell them that they were worthless, and their language and traditions were wrong and bad. They were punished if they spoke their own language. Um, they were taught English. Um, they were punished. They weren't allowed to see their family in many cases for years and years. If siblings went to the school, they were separated. Um, yeah, and then they were abused physically and emotionally, in some cases sexually. And uh, then there was a then there's a discussion about the generations on the aftermath of that, because if you grow up in this really it's a it was a really cold environment uh there was no like hugging or touching or so then when um these kids grew up and left that school they have no idea how to develop relationships and then when they had children they have no idea to ha- how to have a relationship with their children it was just yeah so it was basically 40 years of um us being white colonialists trying to destroy these people 
It is amazing, isn't it? Because you think, like, the pain and suffering that we've inflicted collectively, historically, on people, <laughs> it's just astonishing that anyone would go so far out of their way to, to make this, like, evil effort. And they didn't think they were being evil. Well, I'm sure some of them did, but... I mean, they, the overwhelming belief of the time was that, you know, they're helping these little Indian kids because, you know, their language and traditions weren't worth anything. And obviously we're so much better because we farm and they're hunter-gatherers. So, uh, so I, I, I don't believe in most cases there was an evil feeling behind it yeah well i'm sure it was an evil i'm sure it was you know i'm sure like you say the rationale was we need to help them adapt fit in yeah you know it form their land and we should have maybe adapted and fit in with them well and even like the traditions and the culture and that whole thing is is one part of it but just even taking a child and putting them in an institution yeah is inherently yeah. You know, unpositive and, and damaging. And um, especially there was a lot of things like um, the kids would want to go f- home for the summer and uh, the what what they were called at the time were the Indian agents. And the Indian agents would say, no, these kids can't go home. Their parents aren't suitable. And they would make that decision based on whatever, like maybe the parents weren't working or maybe the parents weren't, like they just would make a decision, nope, the kids can't go home and see their parents because they're not suitable. And then, uh, so these kids had no home life. You had no opportunity to be with your family. Like, ugh. Well, it's like I said, I mean, it's just something that I cannot imagine. No. You know, and, I mean, reading about it, you probably can't even imagine it. No. And, uh, I mean, certainly I'm no expert. I've read a couple of books. I know very little. But it's just, it's such a disturbing part of our history, and I think it's something we need to recognize that, you know, well, while I may not have specifically done this thing, it was done by my ancestors, and it still has reverberations today because there were generations of kids because I mean that school was open for just under 40 years and they had some like I think it was like 300 kids in there well it's funny my my cousin Jennifer she's big on Facebook and um, she's half Ojibwe and um, she has a lot of like half brothers and sisters I think on her dad's side mm-hmm. and um, he uh you know, she had one brother who um, he explained to her about intergenerational trauma and how the effect of the residential school continued from the grandmother to the mother to him. And I mean, the poor fellow actually ended up committing suicide. He was like 28, right? And so there's oh, 
there's knowing about it and then there's like what are we going to do as a society to make some restitution because i mean until we are paying tax dollars to the same amount of money to educate first nations kids as we do to educate everybody else's kids we have not made any progress or until we give people potable water to drink yeah like i mean that's what i'm saying like there has to be there has to be monies there has to be um there has to be something tangible put towards uh, changing the message because, you know, it's like men, that book, uh, there's an advice book I read when I was a kid or whatever. You don't listen to what a man says, you listen to what a man does. And really, I mean, when ugh, society has done so much to um, indigenous cultures, why would you ever believe anything the government said to our, like, I mean, you, the, and so we have to start having tangible actions that carry a far more meaningful message, right? Like, I could not believe when I was like, okay, so they're paying less for First Nations kids to be educated. Yeah. That's, or like you say, water. I mean, who doesn't have drinkable water? Flint, Michigan. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's... appalled by that. Yeah, but I mean, it's... Is it that in our own country... That is water-rich, too, okay? Like, we're not a drought-stricken country. Um, we have more water than many, many, many countries on planet Earth, right? So what is going on? Because clean water is a pretty straightforward engineering problem. And so I just don't know, you know? Um, I think the books are to document the history are really important, but I know... You know, I went through school successfully, uh, not encountering any of this. Yeah, really. And it's not something that um, seems to be a really high priority for a lot of political discussions. You know, and and if there is pol if there are politics around it today, it's usually around the uh, reconciliation, recognizing sort of intangible, soft, fuzzy things. And I'm like, screw that. Show me the money. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, and uh, I think from this, I will probably go on and try and read a bit more uh, history and uh, perhaps read, because the author who wrote this, uh, Chris Benjamin, is not an indig indigenous author. So he states right in the beginning that he isn't and why he was writing the book. And, uh, but I think now I'm going to go and uh, read some, maybe some Rita Joe, um, because she's written some, some books about it, and just, you know, educate myself a little bit more. Yeah, it's kind of where it's at for me as well. So that's good to know about that book, because I didn't even realize there was one on it. Yes, yes, there is. And he is um, obviously a Nova Scotian author, too. Good for him, because that's hard subject matter. I would not want to do what you know. Spend a couple of years working on that kind of researching all of this stuff. Yeah, and I mean to get the trust of people involved to capture their stories to do their stories justice. That'd be tough. So, do you have something cheery? Nope. <laughs> nope. Um, the closest I've got to cheery is um, 
what I learned about politics inside the rise and collapse of Nova Scotia's NDP government by Graham Steele. You know, I learned something from Graham Steele, which goes back to our previous conversation. Mm-hmm. Don't listen to what the government says. Watch where they spend their money. That tells you all you need to know. Yes, it does, sadly. Um, and so I did read this. I enjoyed it. Um, it's good reading if you ever think about running for political office. This book will no way. Oh, I think I should be premier. I do. I mean, I may be egotistical and delusional, but I just think... I feel like they're the right quality. Yeah, exactly. And I really need a pension, so I think I should run for MLA. Um, and I'd be good at it because I'm used to dealing with, like, constant different people and constant problems, you know. Um, I thought the most um, difficult aspect, because he, he sort of talks about his whole history of his career and the different types of work he did, but I think the thing that would scare me the most is he was often asked to help individuals and you know, individuals with problems or difficulties, and if there was any detail or miscommunication or thing that was dropped in his work, it could significantly negatively impact, you know, this individual. He might make a real big difference for somebody, but if he screwed up at all, he could really actually hurt someone. Mm-hmm. And he told a couple of stories that, that spoke to that um both the difference he could make negative or positive. And I think a lot of his satisfaction came from helping constituents find, you know, funding or supports or deal with difficult personal issues. Um, but certainly that would be a lot of more stress than actually dealing with, you know, kind of the government legislative responsibilities and the more straightforward um, aspects of the career. And he was, he was a politician for, well, for a long time, 15 years in politics. Yeah, they just uh, became the governing party towards the end of his time. But yeah, he did serve for a while. And I would recommend it. I definitely would. Because I think um, the more everyone reads about Nova Scotia politics, and I can't really think of a recent book that delves into our current political processes or well, style. I mean, that, that book is fairly recent and he does uh, now again I haven't read it I've just read about it and talk about it but he is exploring like what it's like to be a politician and right now I mean it was published in 2014 right so but I mean I can't think of anything else that so captures our political current state of affairs yeah and of course the NDP government blew it you know Everybody was so excited about the NDPs getting in and they were going to make a difference and then they were a a one-term government. government. Um, And also, too, they didn't, you know, he kind of, I think he could have dished the dirt more, but he does dish the dirt. So if you're looking for the inside nitty-gritty, I mean, he broaches the relationships and his place in the sort of what was going on with the party um, and who he disagreed with. So anybody who's interested in politics should definitely give it a read. And I just think everybody else should be forced to kind of read something like this so they get a better sense of the old school Nova Scotia style politics, right? 
But the old school Nova Scotia style politics involved a bottle of rum. Well, that's really old, but I'm seeing ones nowadays where, you know, you kick up a big enough fuss and get attention and you may get your issue or money problem solved. Um, but then you can get into, as the teacher saw, you can get into a big, big smackdown kind of fight, you know? Um, I think part of the problem is, too, politics are so much about a cult of personality. Like, it's, it was the Dexter government. And even now you see it's the McNeil liberal government. I know, and that drives me insane. And it's like, I want it to be the Laura government, eh? <laughs> Show me the money. It'll be chocolates for everybody. Um, but yeah, no, it's... I'm on board. I will vote for you. Yeah, it's... Here's your call to personnel. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, it's just crazy. Like, why is it... When elections in middle school, like, I'll give you chocolates. Yeah, well, I know, but it's about... In yeah, Nova Scotia, it's like I'll give you a bunch of money for your riding. Um, so anyway, def- definitely have to uh, definitely have to take a read on this. So nonfiction, uh, memoir, and you know it's quite charmingly written. He is uh, Graham Steele's on the radio still on CBC as a political analyst, and um, he has a good writing style. Um, and as I say, he walks a fine line of dishing the dirt, but not being defamatory or saying anything that could get him sued. Not getting sued. Mm-hmm. Being a lawyer, he's sort of up on that kind of thing. So I highly recommend that one. How about yourself? Do you want to hear about uh, My Little Town? Sure. We've talked about a small town, but this is specifically uh, about Amherst. Oh, okay. Haunted Girl. Esther Cox and the Great Amherst Mystery by Laurie Glenn Norris with Barbara Thompson. Oh. So have you heard of the Great Amherst Mystery? I have not. Okay. It is fascinating. I heard about it first when I was in university because I went to university about uh, 15 kilometers away from the town in which I now live. Um, So in the Great Amherst Mystery, there's this young woman, Esther Cox, and they believe that she was haunted um there were uh the the theory was that there were specters around her they were pinching her they were writing on the walls things like your mind to kill uh they were trying they were setting fires um and it was quite the big entertainment in 1878 people would go by the house to see if anything happened um and then this uh guy who had come into town in the 1870s um, decided to write a book about her called The Great Amherst Mystery. He, in fact, took her out on tour as though she was some sort of sideshow freak. Nice. (laughs) And nothing happened on the tour. And so this book was written a couple years ago, um, and it's more about going beyond the mystery and finding out something about the actual person. So, you know, Esther Cox was, uh, there's some question about whether or not she may have been raped, if this started after she was raped, and, um, you know, just uh, one of the things to be cognizant about is that there is an actual woman behind the ghost story that we hear here. Um, the town.
town of Amherst is now talking about, there's a play that was written by a local playwright, uh, Charlie Reindress, and uh, he's going to be putting that on this summer. And the town is talking about making a festival around it, sort of like Salem Witch Trials kind of inspired. (laughs) And then, well, you got to also think this woman was like, and lots of people believe in this too. Oh, wow. They really believe she was haunted. Um, They believe that where her house used to stand, it's been torn down now. Um, But there was then a Canadian tire there in the 80s, and they believe that that part of that Canadian tire was haunted. People will tell you stories about it. Like, it's a a really believed (laughs) statement here. There's actually a mural in town of... It's dedicated to Esther. So the town I live in has a mural dedicated to poltergeist hauntings. Nice. I know. <laughs> and who said small town life is boring? So I, I read The Great Amherst Mystery years and years ago. And then when this came out, I decided, oh, yeah, I should give this a read, too. And it's really, it's very interesting. Oh. Um, and a little bit disturbing. Nice. <laughs> Nice. Um, Do you believe in ghosts, Laura? You know, when I was little, I did. I was completely convinced. Now, I'm sort of almost hopeful for ghosts. (laughs) But, yeah, no, I I haven't had any ghostly experiences. So, I I don't know. I'm I'm largely untouched by the spiritual or otherworldly kind of experience. It's why I can't relate to religion, because I never have any innate sense of it. So I, th- I think it's that aforementioned or many mentioned shallowness as a character started. <laughs> what? Death? Afterlife? I like to notice if ghosts are haunted. Yeah, it's sort of like, hey, dude. Uh, yeah, no, I haven't had any so. But, I mean, you know, other people seem to be big on them. Yeah, it, but this is an interesting book, too, because it talks about uh, sort of the, the things that likely were going on in her life at that time and how people would have believed that this haunting was real and 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 you know what i think one point about the historical aspect of it is a lot of mental illness um historically would have been expressed as you know demons or hauntings or like they would have rather believed she was haunted than that she was raped or something like that you know what i mean yeah, and yeah, I think it was, I think it was probably that she had been sexually assaulted. Yeah, and that uh, she was acting out, mm. but she did it in a way that was recognized as being like she blamed it on something outside of her. Yeah, and then I think it just grew into this big crazy thing. Yeah, so maybe more than she was expecting or wanted. Yeah. At one point, she actually went to jail. Oh, wow. For um, starting a fire in a barn. She said it was the ghosts, and the judge said, no, it was you, and they they sent her to jail. And then after that, she moved away. Well, strange. Strange. So now now I've revealed some of the book. But it's still an interesting read, and it's not a huge book. Okay. Um, I'm going to talk about a Giller winner. Oh, good. Yeah, The Bishop's Man. Oh, yeah. 
by Lyndon McIntyre. And it's a big book in this area because it is geographically set within this um, Cape Breton, um, Inverness County kind of area. Um, Lyndon McIntyre is originally from uh, Longstretch Road, Inverness County, um, Cape Breton, and of course has gone on to a very big career. He's retired now, but he was a, an important journalist. Um, and see again, CBC mentioned twice in the show. Yeah, he was. A, he was. Contra. Yes, he was on TV, The Fifth Estate, and. Um, he then turned his hand to fiction later in his career, and this one, the 2009 uh, killer, um, it's important to this area because it's about the, um, well, it's about a priest whose specialty in the church was cleaning up, quieting down, sending away priests who had sexually abused uh, children. And that he would be like a cleanup man that they would send into an area after there were complaints or issues with a priest. And it's a strange take on the whole sexual abuse scandal because he's not an abuser. Um, in many ways, he's, he's devoted to the church and a good priest, but um, he's been drawn into this horrible role of... Uh, defending the church in a sense by moving these predators along covering up covering up calming down somehow negating the experience of the victims um and then there were things that happened in his own history that affect him um he you know sometimes things get too hot on this issue and he himself is kind of sent away to more far-flung corners to let stuff blow over. Um, it's taken a great toll on him personally because in a sense he is, you know, devoted his life to the church which then asks him to do this essentially evil thing uh, in terms of covering up these crimes. And he kind of has to deny what he knows to be true to be able to pull that off. Um, at the time it came out, it was hugely read in our area. And I think one strength of the book is that it explores the moral complexity of his role and the church's complicit role in abusing young people. Um, without being horribly graphic and the only advantage of not being horribly graphic is that it allows more people to read it like a lot of people could not read a scene of abuse no but there's a step removed that at least gets more like gets more people willing to engage in the story and to consider like the fictional side of the book that I was reading. Yeah, you know, it gives it sort of there's a little bit of space between something horrible happening to a child and you, um, and maybe in a way that almost makes you complicit as a reader in a sense. But it's a very uncomfortable book, and certainly, um, you know, he the character Duncan, Father Duncan. Um, he 
Father Duncan McCaskill, he it turns to drink. And that was one thing I always remember about priests when I was a kid, because you'd go to a wedding, and we're Catholic in our family, but you'd always see how much, like the party after, how much the priests drank. <laughs> how much they could drink, you I, know? Uh, Baptist, so... You wouldn't know anything about that. But drinking. Yeah, but there's something like a lot. Uh, that is one thing that really struck me. And I mean, the poor priest, he was at a party, but I'm like seven and judging him. I'm like, <laughs> you know, that fellow can really put it away. Um, but he does talk about that in terms of the drink being his solace. And because there's no significant other. I mean, where Catholic priests can't get married, there's no significant other. There's no partner. There's no one to one turn. One on which you... In whom you can confide. Yeah, there's no one to turn to. Like, well, I guess you're supposed to confide in God. The, well, or your your supervisor, which is, you know, in this case for him was the Bishop of Anaganish. Um, and so there's something very um, sad and and awful uh, about the book, but at least it has served a purpose of putting, immortalizing this sort of horrible history into a, a, a very literary, tragic kind of read. And so, and the thing about it that is good, too, and is it, and it may be Linda McIntyre, and perhaps I'm even imagining this, but where it won the Giller, which is a national prize, it takes this little bit of history from Nova Scotia and has made it Canadian and bigger. And, it, and I feel like it was a worthy book for the Giller Prize. It was... Oh, yeah. No, it's it's well... well yeah, it's well written. It's... Bleak. Yeah, it's deeply literary. Um, it's complex. It is compelling. Um, it's uncomfortable, which it's supposed to be. Um, and like I said, there's an interesting thing about considering Nova Scotia books because one thing you do find with any regional book... Uh, show like this is that you have books that never make it out of Nova Scotia and then you have a level of books that go beyond Nova Scotia's borders you know um, and both are very important to consider so I have a Cape Breton book yay sort of okay um, Amazing Grace by Leslie Crew. oh and that is getting a lot of attention right now because it's an overdrive Canadian read or something yeah it is yeah, yeah. that's right it's the overdrive version of Canada Reads I don't know what they call it. one big read or something yeah and it's a, an overdrive for those who don't know is an electronic book platform that libraries subscribe to in Nova Scotia and a lot of people subscribe to across Canada yeah so but I read it um a few months ago. Oh, good. And uh, because, you know, I'm a hipster who's ahead of the... <laughs> You're ahead of the curve. <laughs> no, I just read it because um, I picked up other books by Leslie Crew. Yeah. And uh, some of them I did not like. So I picked up... I tried um, Hits and Misses. Oh, yeah. Which was totally just like fluff. And I, I don't know, I couldn't get into it. But Amazing Grace was a great book. Oh, good. So it's about this woman named Amazing Grace Willingdon. That's her name. <laughs> I want to be called Amazing. <laughs> Grows up in this kind of cult. Oh, wow. 
But we don't know that right away. What we know is that she's a woman in her 60s living in Cape Breton with her common-law husband, and her son calls her and tells her, like, her son, whom she hasn't talked to in a few years. They had a very bad relationship. Yeah. He calls her and tells her that his daughter, so her granddaughter, is um, going off the rails and needs to be taken out of New York City where she's at and sent to rural Nova Scotia to calm her down. So Grace takes this girl in and then she starts telling her the story of her life. And that's when we find out the thing about, like she grew up in a cult and she had all these terrible things happen to her. But she does, while she's telling you this, she doesn't feel bad for herself. She's moved on, and and then it's really an exploration of the families that are our biological families, but also the families that we choose as mm. our families, the fa- the people around us that we make up into our sort of friend group that are really our support network. Nice. It it was um, it was a nice book. I liked it. I enjoyed it. It has a bit of bleakness, but it is not as bleak as many of the other books we've talked about. By this show's standards, it's happy. It qualifies as downright cheery. Some of the other books she has written are cheerier. Yeah, no, she likes a good romantic rom-com feel occasionally. Hits and Misses was like a, yeah, it was like a rom-com. Her latest one is called Mary Mary, and uh, it's supposed to be quite funny too uh she had one that was made into a movie a few years ago called relative happiness that seems like a nice little romance yeah planning to read that one so yeah she's mostly upbeat (laughs) she's a delightful person too yeah i'm i'm looking forward she's gonna come visit my library in june yeah she's looking forward to it she's delightful you'll enjoy her she's very very funny when she presents to the public so uh, I highly recommend, regardless whether you like her books, I highly recommend going to see her read. And her book a couple of years ago, Kin, the cover of that book is artwork by Deanne Fitzpatrick. And Deanne Fitzpatrick, of course, we've had her on the show before. She's a well-known rug hooker uh, who has a studio here in town. So it's... Uh, yeah, it was, she's, uh, like I said, uh, she's a lovely person. I'm excited. Yeah, you should be. You know what? We've chatted and chatted, and it's 50 minutes. I need to say two things. Okay. I just finished a book that I got from White Hots. Yay, White Hots. Yay, White Hots. Uh, Every Exquisite Thing by Matthew Quick. It was an advanced reading copy, but since it takes me so long to get through the box, it's no longer advanced. (laughs) (laughs) It's out there. And when I say White Hots, then I think, oh, we should thank Nova Scotia Provincial Library for sponsoring us. And if you want to know any of the names of the books that we are talking about, I will tweet them out on our Twitter, at Podcast. Yeah, the Nova Scotia show was easy. Nova Scotia show. I mean, I have more. Yeah, yeah. You know, what is our next show? Do you remember? New Brunswick. Oh my goodness. I gotta get going. New Uh. Brunswick is next. And if you think Nova Scotia is bleak, wait until you get to New Brunswick. Yeah, New Brunswick's even bleaker.
That's my home province. Thanks, David Adam Richards. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, on that note, uh, we'll talk to you next time. Book Ragers, keep raging. Keep reading. Keep reading.